0: Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones-Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas.
1: From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New
2: Orleans, we're Out to Lunch with Peter Aschutti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birken Reports. It's business, New Orleans style.
3: Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 80% of Americans live in urban environments. One of the interesting aspects of that statistic is that the food we all need to survive is grown mostly in rural America. In other words, 80% of us are dependent on 20% of the population for survival. Now, given that our survival depends on it, you'd think we'd make the infrastructure of rural America a priority, but we don't. Government and private companies alike create infrastructure that is designed around how we live in cities. Take cell service and internet service, for example. Cell towers, the towers that deliver service, need power to run them. When that power goes down, backup batteries run the network till service can be restored. Now, if you live in a city, there's a repair person close enough to get the cell tower back up and running quickly. But if you live in a rural area, service can be out for a couple of weeks till someone gets there to fix it. So having backup batteries that are charged and functioning is vital. The problem is checking on how those batteries are charging and whether they're functioning properly is something that has to be done by a technician. That is already a chronic problem in rural America and it's now becoming a growing city problem as well. Now that's because baby boomers are reaching retirement age, leaving us with an extreme shortage of qualified technicians. And that's where Chris Mangum comes to the rescue. Chris has developed a method that allows the kinds of batteries that power cell towers to be monitored remotely. This monitoring doubles the life of batteries and totally solves the problem of the declining population of technicians. Chris's company, Cervedo, is spearheading a quiet revolution. Cervedo has been up and running for five years. It is spread across 27 states and it's headquartered here in New Orleans. Chris, welcomed out to lunch. Thanks, thanks for having me, Peter. The structure of the global economy is not unlike the divide between the urban and rural economies in the U.S. Globally, the bulk of populations who live in wealthy, developed nations rely on the populations in poorer and developing nations to provide all kinds of products. Now, some of these products are inarguably essential, like the components of cell phones, and some are arguably essential, like coffee and chocolate. In 2013, Carol Morse traveled from New Orleans to visit her husband, who was working in Guatemala. While she was there, Carol met local cacao growers and chocolate makers. When she came back to New Orleans, Carol started importing cacao and taught herself how to make chocolate. When she got good enough at it, she founded a company and called it Acali Chocolate. Acali is an Aztec word that means canoe. The Aztecs invented chocolate... And it was the canoe that transported the cacao beans great distances, just as Carol is doing today. Akali Chocolates is made in Gretna, currently from cacao beans from Peru and Mexico, and it's sold all across the country. Carol, welcome out to lunch.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
3: Chris, the trajectory of Cervedo is a great story, Uh, but it's not the result of some sort of magical piece of good luck. Before Cervedo, you were vice president of corporate development at the telecom company CenturyLink. You'd taken that company from a market capitalization of $2.5 billion to $25 billion. But in the process, you burned yourself out. You were taking a self-imposed break from corporate life when you found a small struggling company that you thought looked like it had promising technology, but you had to raise money, develop the technology, and stand up a new company. That's not easy, and it's most definitely not stress-free. It was an interesting choice for a guy who's suffering from burnout. So having experienced corporate America, and now that you have your own company, what is your definition of success going to be?
2: <laughs> uh, you said you'd ask the easy questions first. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> Well, uh, I did take some time off, so I was able to recharge the batteries. No, oh, hey. no pun intended. Uh, sorry about that. Um, uh, and I had my first child. Uh, we moved to New Orleans. My wife is from here. And um, when, when that child came along, I realized that I needed to get back to work. <laughs> um, children are not inexpensive. Um, and we, we developed the company in a way that... Um, was not a typical startup. Uh, The technology had been developed at another company, a venture-backed battery company. We spun that technology off into a company that we formed uh, here in New Orleans, raised money. We we, uh, inherited some of the team, so we didn't have to build the team from scratch, which uh, gave us a tremendous advantage. The team had been working together for quite a while, and these were technical people, salespeople, customer support people, folks like that. And we had um, a small installed customer base that we were able to build on pretty quickly. And the reason that we that, that I chose this business was because it was still very focused on telecom. And I thought with my network in telecom, I could, you know, accelerate sales growth pretty rapidly by going back and calling on some of you know those uh, those contacts. You know, it, it's it's not. Um, um, It takes a long time to grow a business like this, particularly when you're selling to a very mature market. And the telecom industry is very mature, they're very conservative. It takes a long time for them to make buying decisions, particularly when you're trying to change buying behavior. We're really trying to convince them to do something that they haven't been doing before.
3: Carol, your background and your company's origin uh, couldn't be more different from Chris. You have a background in anthropology and economic development. You worked with... Opportunity Fund, that's a nonprofit that provides financing to underserved small business owners. Through your work, you acquired a sophisticated understanding of microfinance and loans. And yet, when you set up your own small business to make chocolate, you started a collie with no loans. I understand that to this day, you have no investors. The company is completely self financed, which is great to a point. The question is can you grow a manufacturing business with slim margins like chocolate into something big enough to give you the freedom? From being there every day, or are you happy to be small and physically make the chocolate yourself every day forever? <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, that's a that's a lot of questions right there. I guess I'm still figuring it out as I go. It has been interesting, I'll say, starting a manufacturing business at such a small scale, um, especially in getting permitting and licenses. It's a uh, I think most of the bureaucratic setup has assumed that chocolate makers are gonna be larger companies than what I'm doing. There's really been an explosion in the American craft chocolate movement in recent years. You see a lot more companies like mine that are making chocolate in on the order of hundreds of bars a week rather than you know something much much larger than that and it is an incredibly labor-intensive and time-consuming process i've learned as i've been doing it it's something that i'm fortunate is both my hobby and my business so it's something i enjoy doing which is probably for the best given how much of my time it can end up taking up and I have been excited in the last couple years to start hiring employees for the first time, so I'm working on on delegating better and um, handing off more of the process where I can. But of course, having started the business just as myself and without outside financing and starting at a small scale, I'm used to being really hands-on, and so it can be hard to hand things off that I've just enjoyed and gotten accustomed. You know, to when I myself. read about
3: you, it almost sounds, I would say you equally care about the, the sourcing and the people that you're getting the cacao from as you do the product itself. I mean, you 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 have a real, uh, you know, kind of macro look at what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I would say that Sourcing The sourcing side of things was definitely the biggest draw for me to starting the business. Um, You mentioned my background in anthropology and economic development, so the sourcing side of things particularly called out to me, getting to meet cacao growers in person before I started buying from them and forming a bit of a relationship there really recognizing or trying to recognize all of the work that farmers are doing at origin to cultivate and ferment and dry cacao and really create this great quality product before we even get to what I'm doing as a chocolate maker.
3: And you mentioned that you think you may be the first bean to bar, uh, chocolate bar. Uh, what, what does that mean?
1: So when people talk about bean-to-bar chocolate or chocolate makers, what that refers to is a company that starts from cocoa beans and makes the chocolate itself. So they're normally going to be roasting those cocoa beans, removing the husk from the outside of the beans, and then grinding them with sugar and with milk if they're making a milk chocolate and producing liquid chocolate and ultimately bars. And that's as opposed to chocolatiers who start with chocolate that they buy as an ingredient from another company, and then they're using that ingredient to make confections or to make bars, but they're not making the chocolate itself.
3: You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Rusciutti. I'm talking with Carol Morse from Macaulay Chocolate and Chris Mangum. From Cervedo Corporation.
2: Now, Chris, were you uh, CenturyLink is actually headquartered in Monroe? Is that where you were? Yes. All of the leadership there when I was when I started there, it was CenturyTel when I started there. Uh, all of the the leadership was from the area, and and they led the company through this tremendous growth. The CEO, you know, had been the CEO for thirty years before he retired, and, and made he was
3: big acquisition in Denver. What was, was well, that? Quest?
2: Quest. Yeah, that was. So the... while I was there, we bought. Sprint's landline business, which was called Embark, which more than doubled us in size. I think we we were two and a half times as big. They were two and a half times as big as we were when we bought them. Uh, That made us big enough to buy Quest, which if we hadn't bought Embark, we wouldn't have bought Quest. Uh, And that made us the third largest telecom company in the country.
3: Is it weird to be working with something so small compared to
2: something so gargantuan? Well I I had uh, really for most of my career I've moved from entrepreneurial projects to big companies. um, It's just kinda how I've mapped my career. Every five years I usually will try to make a change and I worked for Bell South uh, when I was in Atlanta which was about the same size that CenturyLink was when I left. Uh, Big southeast regional Bell operating company most people here in New Orleans would think of it as the local telephone right. company, but uh, we operated globally. We owned wireless um, networks in Israel and India and all over Latin America. You know, it was a pretty big, pretty big business. Then I left there in the late '90s and uh, started a venture firm in Atlanta and did that for eight years. So this is not and new to you. Not new, and and I've always worked around technology and telecom-related, internet-related technology. So. The, what I hear a lot on the investment side is that we've got
3: really big problems down the road in the, in the aging uh, grid.
2: Uh, what do you think? Well, so when you think about the grid, you, you really have to think about it in, in two aspects. Uh, there's the telecom grid, which is aging, uh, despite the internet and, and all that we hear about investment and internet infrastructure the underlying infrastructure, the telecom network itself, really provides most of the bandwidth. Even if you're using your smartphone to contact a wireless tower, the wireless tower, the connection from your cell phone to the wireless tower is wireless. But it immediately becomes a wired connection on the back end of that that wireless tower. And so that connection, particularly in rural areas, is typically provided by a smaller carrier. And that smaller carrier may have neglected its investment in that infrastructure connecting the wireless towers and therein lies the problem. The other side of the grid, the eroding grid, uh, is the power network itself. So none of this works, none of the telecom infrastructure works if it's not powered. And the, the grid, no matter how well the grid is developed and built, it's going to go down eventually. There are going to be weather events and things like that, so you have to plan for those eventualities. The problem is the grid has been under invested in and neglected, the power grid, for a long time, say three, four decades. A lot of the infrastructure that uh, in the transmission, the long-haul transmission networks, has been around since the 70s, right, and it was only designed to last for about 50 years, so it's coming up toward end of life. A lot of the local distribution uh, network has been around since the early 20th century. It's long past its prime. Now a lot of power utilities are investing in that now. Entergy uh, is making a huge investment in the local uh, uh, grid, what, what they call grid modernization, um, which you know I, I applaud, and a lot of other utilities have made that investment too, but as you get further out into rural areas, those investments really haven't happened yet. And at the same time, the telecom companies have neglected backup power there too. So you've got this kind of perfect storm, um, you know. It's happening in a lot Chris, of. Chris, when areas. I read your story
3: um, and the story of, of Cervedo, I kept thinking you've got a new product that you've got to bring to the market, and people generally
2: don't want to be the first one to to try something out. How did you get past that? Well, there are always early adopters you know, in any uh, market that you're, that you're selling into, and we found those early adopters, luckily, pretty early. Um, and it, it, the, the product does diffuse into the marketplace along fairly classic lines. These early adopters will take risks, but they don't buy in large numbers. So you have to cross the chasm, or whatever you know metaphor you want to use, to get to those larger customers. And we're in the process of crossing the chasm right now. You know, we've had a lot of success with early adopters. Uh, they love the product. Uh, they've helped us to develop and evolve the product a lot. Uh, now we're moving into larger carriers and try to get them to make more scale purchases. And that's you know therein lies the challenge. I think with any startup. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we, we seem pretty feel pretty optimistic about it. Hey, uh, I find uh, the chocolate that I find Carol. I find in coffee
3: shops is uh, by the way, the baristas are great workers for you because I'll ask about it and they 'll always go, "You just have to try it. it's so delicious, so you have them on on your side that's, uh, that's for, but how do you get shelf space? How do you get in a coffee shop? Do you just knock on the door? Is it, is it just you?
1: It is mostly just me when it comes to sales. Um, Coffee shops have been such a great customer of mine and such a great supporter of my business since the very beginning. Um, New Orleans coffee shops, I think for one thing, it's such a natural combination of products. A coffee is like chocolate or like wine in that it's an agricultural product that depending on where it's grown, depending on the growing region, on um, the climate, the genetics of the plant, there are so many different things that can impact the flavor of the end coffee or the end chocolate. And so I think that's something that baristas are able to talk comfortably about and it's just such a natural pairing of food and drink. But in terms of uh, getting into coffee shops or getting into any kind of store, that's certainly the part of the process that I find the most intimidating. <laughs> I'm, I'm fortunate to be selling something that most people like and are excited about. So when I walk into a new store or a potential new store, if I'm bringing chocolate with me, that usually is helpful with getting a positive <laughs> response. And I'm
3: curious, also, do you do better with local coffee shops or chains?
1: Uh, definitely local coffee shops. Um, and I've seen a change in my customer base over time as well, that's been really interesting and fun to observe. When I first started the business, I'm now about four years in. When I first started, um, I got a Good Food Award based out of California, which was great timing as a new business because it brought in more attention than I would normally have expected to get as a new company. And it brought in a lot of attention from outside of the state and from the West Coast. And so initially I was selling a lot of product outside of New Orleans and outside of Louisiana. And over time, that's really reversed as I've gotten to meet people in person here and talk about what I do. And I found so much local support and there's so much local interest in and passion for food and where it comes from and who's behind it and what goes into it. And so now I sell far more in New Orleans than I do out of state. And that's been an exciting transition for the me. The fact it
3: tastes great is- I think a real place. There's, uh, now, I like to think so. <laughs> now, Carol and Chris, this is the part of the show we call your brother-in-law. You've got to the end of a long day. You're ready to go home when your phone rings, and it's your brother-in-law. He usually only calls for career advice, but this time it's different. This time he's got a great idea for you. Chris, your brother-in-law says you're only a heartbeat away from being the wealthiest guy in the world. A rechargeable battery that can power a home or a business or a car is the holy grail of energy generation. Everyone is counting on Elon Musk to come up with this magic battery that'll get us off oil and change the world. But your technological discoveries might be a part of the solution to this problem. Your brother-in-law suggests that I'm sorry, your brother-in-law suggests that he join you as the vice president of corporate development with a job. I'm sorry, that's your old title, right? There's a Your brother-in-law suggests that he join you as the vice president of corporate development with job number one being forge a partnership with Tesla. What do you tell your brother-in-law? Could world domination be a
2: part of the Cervedo plan? <laughs> um, well, Tesla is focused on a different battery chemistry than we address, lithium-ion. And lithium is... Um, less stable and more costly than the lead-acid batteries that we address typically. Um, I would encourage my brother-in-law to um, maybe do a little more research on the battery chemistry. He's not like that. You know yeah. that. Uh, he? uh, <laughs> maybe he's not VP material yet, you know. Um, <laughs> did you notice I gave him the same title <laughs> I, I, that you I had? Did, it, did, it, I did, <laughs> I did, I did. They probably said that about me a lot at CenturyLink too. I wasn't VP <laughs> material. The... the um, lithium-ion battery chemistry uh, is not ready for use in homes. Um, It's it's prone to thermal runaway. And uh, what you see sometimes with Teslas that are in accidents, they catch fire. It's not because, you know, there's no gasoline in the car to ignite. There's not a lot of flammable material in the car to ignite. But the lithium-ion batteries can go into thermal runaway. They catch fire and they start causing the batteries adjacent to them to catch fire and eventually they all catch fire and it's very hard to put that kind of fire out and you don't want that in your kitchen or garage right um you mean, know, no. yeah well. <laughs> now lead acid batteries on the other hand most people think lead and acid those are two terrible things to have around the house right but lead is the most recycled product in the world it's more recycled than paper plastic glass anything else most people don't know that um, and the acid that's in the batteries, the way the batteries are built now, uh, they're packaged in a way that is completely contained. So the reaction that goes on inside the battery produces water and, and all the, the you know, stuff that's required to maintain the battery. So they can last on their own for a long time if they're charged properly. So they're very safe. And the, the big challenge is that they're, uh, you, ha- you can use fewer lithium ion batteries to provide the same amount of power that you, know, you would provide with lead acid batteries. So in terms of power density, you, know, you could put fewer lead, uh, lithium ion batteries in the same space to provide the same backup power you know, that, that you would require maybe twice as much space for a lead acid battery. And so some, for some applications, it's just not, uh, you, you don't want to use lead acid batteries to provide motive power for a car, because you, know, you have to put another lead acid battery, it adds another 50 pounds, you have to put another lead acid battery to make up for the 50 pounds, you know, it kind of <laughs> becomes a, a problem. I don't think your brother-in-law knows any of this, by the way, <laughs> I was going to say. That you
3: know. Now, Carol, your brother-in-law says he has a brilliant strategy for the strategic growth of Akali chocolate. He calls his plan FTW. It stands for Follow the Weed. The FTW plan for expansion is sell high-end chocolate through stores that cater to people with expendable income who like chocolate, otherwise known as anybody in a weed store in any of 17 states in the U.S. where pot is legal and the entire nation of Canada. Your brother-in-law is prepared to hit the road and visit every weed shop in North America with a sample of Akali chocolate. All you have to do is give him the chocolate and pay for the gas, and he'll cover everything else for a 30% cut of everything he sells. Uh, What do you tell your brother-in-law? Is he on to a halfway good idea for targeted expansion here? (laughs)
1: Well, that is an idea. I um I thought you were going to say that my brother-in-law was gonna suggest combining weed and chocolate. That which was is...
3: actually my follow-up question. <laughs> tell me tell me about both of them.
1: That is neither of those are in my, my business plans for the near future, although that is something that you see a lot of people starting to look at, and there are definitely companies that are interested in doing that and are doing that, depending on where they're located around the US. So it seems that my brother-in-law would not be alone in thinking that there is a market there. I cannot say it's something I have considered, but... What a
3: combination, though. Delicious, and, you know, that's that'd be good marketing.
1: Maybe I should listen to my brother-in-law I, more. I
3: think he's <laughs> smarter than my brother-in-law. <laughs> you are going to put Gretna on the map with this. This is going to be so great.
1: That is a way to do it.
0: <laughs>
3: now, Chris, I had to ask you, I meant to ask you earlier, Is um, you did... Um, venture capital. You looked at a lot of companies in that role and decided which ones to invest in. What was it about this that grabbed you? You were not a novice at looking at companies.
2: Yeah, um, and, and I reached out to other um, friends in the venture industry and and uh, folks who had built telecom applications and that sort of thing to get their feedback and what really uh, made my decision for me was the support that they gave I mean, they were they they liked the idea a lot and they thought it had legs um you know as good as the idea could be it then boils down to execution and uh i think you know there were challenges we didn't anticipate and and one of them was that in some cases our relationships with operators you know telecom operators kind of worked against us um you know we would have a good i would have a good relationship that um you know, the people I was calling on to sell to might say, well, I can't really buy from you because that's going to be viewed, you know, inappropriately or, or as an inappropriate thing. Uh, so that set us back a little bit. We had to find other people with relationships that, you know, they could uh, work to, to kind of get some sales effort going. But we'd, we've been able to recruit um, some sales leadership from the industry, you know, fairly senior sales leadership from the industry that seems to be accelerating things a lot. And, you um, you know, overcoming that challenge of, um, you know, proving to a, a very conservative buyer that this new approach works, you know, that, that seemed to be a hard thing. And, you know, we, we were, one of the value propositions was that we were doubling the life of these batteries. And the, the batteries are marketed to last for eight years. Now they typically don't last that long. And particularly if they're in very hot environments and they're not being charged properly, they may only last for two years. Well, proving that you can get from two years to four years, you can do in a four-year time span. But proving that you can get from four years to eight years, most startups don't have the luxury of doing that, right? So we had to come up with some creative ways to demonstrate that. And, and, um, you know, to the team's credit, they've come up with some pretty interesting ways to do that. Accelerated life tests and, you know, all these kinds of things. Take a five-year-old battery and put it on the system and see what happens to it over the next couple of years, for instance. But, Carol, you
3: just have people, word of mouth, tell you how, tell each other how delicious it is. (laughs) And uh, uh, that's an easier entry, I think. That's, uh,
1: That's the hope.
3: Carol, there's nothing like a piece of chocolate to recharge the batteries during the day. And Chris, there's literally nothing quite like Cervedo Corporation's technology to literally recharge batteries. Carol and Chris, congratulations on both of your impressive achievements to date. I'm looking forward to keeping up with your continued success. Thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Carol Morse, founder and owner of Akali Chocolate, and Chris Mangle, the CEO of Cervedo Corporation. You can find out more about Carol's chocolate and Chris's batteries by following the links on our website, it's itsneworleans.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle, And today's show was engineered by Thomas Walsh. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel, You can listen to this show and to past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify and at itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and on its New Orleans Facebook page and at its New Orleans on Instagram. These photos were taken today by Jill Lafleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business, New Orleans style, on Out to Lunch.